Well, thank you very much for inviting me here, uh, to Gil and to all the others who make this place run and work. This morning I'd like to talk about uh, emptiness and uh, vipassana. And I would like to begin with a story that goes back to probably the 6th century in China and concerns the Indian founder of uh, Zen or Chan in China, a monk called Bodhidharma. Not much is known about Bodhidharma, but he seems to have been in China around this period and shortly after arriving had a meeting with a certain Emperor Wu of the country called Liang. And Emperor Wu, it turned out, was a rather keen supporter of Buddhism. He built monasteries and temples and so forth and so on and, and very much wanted to understand and practice the Dharma. So when this uh, eminent monk arrived from India, he invited him to the palace and uh, sought to uh, receive teachings from him. The first question he asked to Bodhidharma was, um, what is the meaning of the holy truths of Buddhism? And Bodhidharma replied, unholy emptiness. And then the emperor, no doubt somewhat taken aback, asked Bodhidharma, then who is standing in front of me? And Bodhidharma replied, I don't know. <laughs> now one can of course um, uh, simply be impressed by the provocative nature of Bodhidharma's comments it's certainly in keeping with the Chan or Zen movement that then uh, developed from him but I think there's also something in these comments that does touch very much to the heart of what the kind of practice that Buddhists do, is about. Bodhidharma, in the first instance with the emperor, was very reluctant to embark on a schematic or doctrinal interpretation of the Four Noble Truths, which was presumably what the emperor was getting at. And instead, he he pulled the rug of doctrinal security from beneath the emperor's feet and simply pointed him to an unholy emptiness. Emptiness is certainly a term that we come across frequently in Buddhism, perhaps more in Zen and Mahayana than one does in the early tradition. But nonetheless, it's a very key term. Uh, in the Pali Canon, the Buddha describes um, emptiness as the, the Mahapurusha Vihara, which means the abode of the great person. Again, it might sound initially odd because we think of emptiness as another way of talking about selflessness, no self. And yet here we have in a very early text the Buddha 
describing emptiness as the abode of the great person. So in other words, it's not simply a negation or an elimination of any sense of self, but strangely, if one were to dwell in this emptiness, that would actually reveal one as a great person, a person of great standing, of great wisdom, of great insight, of great freedom perhaps. Also, emptiness, although it becomes very often a term that we give privileged significance, for Bodhidharma is unholy. It's not sacred. I remember when I was studying with my main Tibetan teacher, Geshe Rabte, he would also say um, uh, that Dongbani, that Shunyata, that emptiness, was not, there's not, not, nothing holy or sacred about it. That it's simply a way of describing a letting go, a loss, a falling away of what restricts, of what confines us, of what cuts us off from a deeper, ongoing, liberated relationship to the web of life itself. Another occasion, Geshe Rabte was asked by a student at a session somewhat like this, um, if everything is empty, how can we appreciate the beauty of nature? And he replied, um, it's only when we understand that things are empty that we can appreciate the beauty of nature. That emptiness is a strategic term. It's not describing a state. It's certainly not describing some kind of sacred space. It's a tool rather than a truth claim. It's about a kind of practice, a, a relationship we have with ourselves, with our lives, in which we can somehow free our minds, our thoughts, our emotions from the fixations that tend to isolate, that tend to reduce us to an endlessly self-referring ego. When that begins to drop away, then the world opens up, the world brightens, and we experience a curious sense of freedom within the midst of contingent and impermanent events. So when the emperor then asks Bodhidharma, well, who then is standing in front of me? And Bodhidharma says, I don't know. He's not meaning you know, I've forgotten what my name is, or I don't remember anything beyond ten minutes ago. He seems to be pointing at something uh, really rather different than that. A sense, perhaps, that when you ask that question, who am I, that if you allow yourself to dwell in that question, you allow yourself, as you might, exam for example, when you're sitting in just mindful attention of things, that the more you probe into this flux of conditions of the body, of the mind, of thoughts, emotions, the less it becomes possible to reductively identify anything within that process as me. 
again, for conventional purposes, it's necessary to have a clear sense of who I am as opposed to who you are. This is important. We all have our own histories, we all have our own distinctive life that's unfolded from what we have done and the influences we've received and the choices we have made and that defines us. But we tend to sort of cluster around that identity and think of it as something separate and apart. Through meditation, by exploring the very nature of what's unfolding in each moment, we find that this apparently um, rigid and concrete sense of I begins to break down. It begins to become increasingly difficult to pinpoint anything, either a physical sensation or a mental event or a feeling, as what essentially constitutes me. So Bodhidharma's I don't know is speaking from that level of experience, the level the Buddha might have spoken of as the abode of the great person. In another story, again concerning Bodhidharma, we get another insight into what this emptiness might be. Bodhidharma spent a number of years on a mountain called uh, Mount Song, which is to the north of the Yangtze, outside the town of Loyang. And according to legend, at least, he spent nine years sitting in a cave, staring at a wall. And one day, in the winter, a monk came up to him outside the cave, a monk called Hueko, and called out to him and said, Master, please show me how to set my mind at rest. And Bodhidharma called back, well, bring me your mind and I will put it to rest for you. <laughs> so Hueko goes away, looking for his mind, no doubt. And a few days later, he comes back to the cave and he says, I've looked everywhere for my mind, but I can't find it. And Bodhidharma replies, You see, I put it to rest for you. <laughs> Again, you know, this is an amusing little episode. It might be taken as a typical bit of rather quaint Zen quirkiness. But again, I think it says far more than that. In the Tibetan tradition, again, emptiness is very often described as the ultimate unfindability of things. It's not thought of as a, as a state of any kind that you mystically gain some insight into, but it is understood as that almost infinite depth that you reach when you begin to probe deeply into the question of who am I or what is this? Uh, when you ask such questions about the very nature of your experience. So for Hui Ko, the student, 
when he started turning his attention inwards to try to find his mind, he discovered that no matter how deeply and how acutely he pursued this search, in the end, he arrived neither at something that he could say, oh, that's the mind, there it is, that bright luminous bit in the left corner of my brain, that's the mind. Nor did he find it um, uh, it's any, anywhere in the body or in the emotions. But nor did he arrive just at nothing. That, I think, is the crucial point. That this emptiness is not equivalent to nothingness. It's very much a kind of opening up in the fabric of our lives a path or a way or a dimension that's neither something nor nothing. That the mind is not reducible to some thing, the I is not reducible to some thing, but the more that we probe it, that does not mean that we arrive at nothing. Instead, we just keep on going. It's a bit like the way in which our physicists explore the nature of matter, which has been going on now for quite some time. They probe into what appears to be the hard, lumpy stuff and find that it breaks down into atoms and electrons and molecules and so forth and so on. And when we probe the atoms and the molecules, we find... Um, leptons and quarks and, and such things as that. In other words, the, the more that we look, uh, we certainly don't come up with any hard, lumpy stuff, but on the other hand, we don't just dissolve into nothing at all. We keep um, uh, every particular layer of inquiry reveals another dimension of, in this case, uh, subatomic reality. Nowadays, they're pursuing this inquiry still and have come up with the theory that the only way that we can account for the, I think it's the, you know, the, the, the relative amount of matter and antimatter in the universe is by positing uh, another dimension still more subatomic than quarks and so on, which are called superstrings. But in order to build a... Um, uh, what do they call them, those um, accelerators. Um, in order to test this theory, the accelerator would be several miles in diameter and would probably cost as much as the military budget. So no one's going to do it. But nonetheless, one has the sense that uh, this too is a quest for something and, a, and one might have the suspicion that even if they were to establish superstrings, that might simply set up another question. And to what extent such inquiry is in a way infinite. And I think that this sense of a kind of infinity, a kind of infinite groundless depth, is another way of talking about emptiness. Perhaps the greatest um, writer in Buddhist tradition on the idea of emptiness 
is Nagarjuna. And I did a version of one of his texts in my book, Verses from the Centre. Some of you might have seen it. But there's a passage in there that I think is very illuminating, where Nagarjuna says, Buddhas say that emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. We have here a notion that emptiness is not so much a state or even an unfindability of things, but emptiness is rather an emptying, a letting go. Again, a term we're probably familiar with. Uh, a releasing of a certain attachment. Now, Nagarjuna says that emptiness is the letting go or the relinquishing of opinions. Uh, tawa, uh, uh, ditti in Pali, which means views. And we might, of course, think that views or opinions are simply um, mental states. I have uh, views and opinions about this and that. I believe this, I believe that. And if I could somehow just let go of those theories and those beliefs, then I would experience emptiness. It's not as easy as that. One can uh, easily abandon all one's uh, cherished positions, but that in itself, simply as a kind of provocative philosophical act, would probably make relatively little difference to the way in which we actually experience our life. In Buddhism, opinion or view certainly does refer to particular um, ideas we might have about things, but at a deeper level, it refers to a particular kind of hold or grip we have that's pre-linguistic and pre-conceptual. Uh, sometimes you hear terms like uh, self-grasping, in other words, a grasping, um, this is really what lies at the root of what subsequently might become beliefs and views and opinions. An attempt to hold on to something fixed, something stable, in the midst of a world that is highly unfixed and instable or how the Buddhists would say, impermanent, fluctuating, fluid. And I think perhaps this grasping is not, um, in the first instance, uh, a kind of mental or conscious choice. Gosh, this is a scary place, let's grasp onto a self. But this self-grasping is really arising almost instinctively perhaps as one of many survival mechanisms and strategies which um, simply comes with the biological organism. Uh, the Tibetans, in fact, although they don't speak of biology or have a scientific understanding of the world, nonetheless acknowledge that this grasping, this self-grasping, is in one sense innate. They use the word flenke, which means inborn. We, we, we land in the world as graspers right from the beginning. And again, children, I think, are quite good illustrations of this sometimes. 
we then on the basis of that kind of instinctive and apparently self-evident grip on I might then construct theories or religious beliefs about eternal souls and reincarnating bits of us and so on. But the real challenge of the kind of uh, practice one does in meditation, for example, is not about simply reorganizing one's belief system, but it's very much about working with and learning to let go of these deep clingings and graspings at self, and then by implication at other selves, at things in the world, a, a, a capacity we have that is so natural in a way that it's very difficult to notice, a tendency that is to, uh, to, to split and segregate this web of life into numerous discrete and self-standing entities and things and egos and states and religions and beliefs and so on. And again, I don't think that's in itself a bad thing. It's certainly a way that we need to see the world in order to function um, effectively and competently and meaningfully with others. It's a social device. The, 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 this is a necessary function of how human beings live. But the side effect, the problem, is that it leads us into a, uh, a fictitious sense of our own identity, of what things truly are, as it were. Again, not dissimilar from the scientific search for the ultimate particles of matter. The scientist might know that the chair that he or she is sitting on is 95% space, but that doesn't mean that they won't go down to the store and buy a nice chair and use it to sit on and have an entirely conventional relationship with chairs. It's a bit like that with our meditation practice, that we're seeking um, to find the root meaning of things, what is actually going on, as a means to, to liberate us from that closure, that fixity, in which we sometimes feel very, very alienated and trapped, but that doesn't mean that we relinquish any conventional relationships with the world we share with other people. But this, of course, all gives rise to the question, how do you empty yourself? How do you let go? It's very easy to say in meditation, well, just let go of those thoughts. Um, don't be so attached to it. But simply to give ourselves that instruction or to have somebody else tell us to let go very often seems to have no effect at all. It, uh, it sounds like a nice idea. I'd very much like to do that. But letting go of this, let's say, intense kind of self-centered spasm in which we find ourselves <laughs> is, is not something that's within the uh, capacity of our volition or will. I can't just say, let go. Nothing happens. 
I just hear the words let go echo in my mind and I feel just as, as neurotic as I was before I said let go. So how does this letting go happen? How does it work? Like most things in Buddhism, letting go is not an activity that operates in its own right, somehow as a self-defined activity, but it's something that occurs when we create a set of conditions that enable the letting go to happen. In other words, letting go, like everything else, arises contingently upon other factors. What we can do in meditation is not tell ourselves to let go, but rather to, um, to reconfigure and reorient our sense of what it is to be in this body, in this mind, and in this world. And this is largely a perceptual exercise. If we just go back to the basics of, of uh, vipassana meditation. Initially, we learn to make our mind more still and focused. This is called shamatha. The stilling of the attention, usually in this tradition, on the breath, so that we train ourselves to become more focused and concentrated. This is a very important and necessary step because as we know only too well the mind likes to go anywhere it can rather than just being still. To watch the breath um, in, a, in, in a mindful way is a very uh, simple instruction but as we probably know it, that does not mean that it is easy to do. It can be simple and at the same time very difficult. It seems sometimes that as soon as we try to focus on a particular object, this is almost like a trigger for the mind to do the very opposite. And it'll race all over the place, into the past, into the future, anything, but to just settle on the breath. But over time, if we work at this, if we establish a kind of discipline, go on retreats, sit regularly, you know, reflect about the value of such things, then we will find that we can sustain that attention for longer periods of time. It becomes a more easy and also easing way of being. Um, and one that um, also has the effect of quietening the chatter of the mind. So that we find not only a concentration enhanced, but we also find that that concentration generates a kind of stillness, a quiet, a spaciousness in which we feel at ease within our experience, uh, but at the same time still and focused. So that's very much, as it were, the ground of meditation practice, but that in itself is not Vipassana. Vipassana is what we then do in the context of that focused stillness. So when the mind becomes still and quiet, 
It's not that that is the end of the exercise, that now we feel, you know, kind of peaceful and calm and cool. And we think, great, I like meditation, this is really nice. You could do that, and I think perhaps that can also be a very, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a clearly a very agreeable state to be in. But from the perspective of uh, the Buddhist teaching on understanding and freedom and enlightenment and so on, this is just a kind of platform on which we can then begin to work. And the work that we then proceed to at that point is paying closer and closer attention to the, uh, the basic characteristics of things. And in particular, we pay attention to how everything is in a state of flux, everything is changing from moment to moment, the famous impermanence. So in addition to just watching the breath, you also begin then to notice how the breath does not stay the same from one moment to the next. Now, of course, we know that. Intellectually, it's not exactly the greatest revelation to learn that everything changes. We say, yeah, right, big deal. The reason why it's given such importance is because instinctively we are in a denial much of the time about change. That we're committed through this grasping, through this clinging to self, for example, to a sense of who we are as being something that does not change, something fixed, something stable in the midst of an unstable world. When we quieten the mind, bring our attention to a deeper level of focus and stillness and then apply that awareness, that still focused awareness, to simply notice how everything that arises in the moment has come from somewhere else and will pass away. It arises, it passes away. It comes, it goes. And the meditation is very much one of registering consciously over a sustained periods of time, both in formal meditation and in our life as we go through the day, that nothing remains the same. Everything is in a state of flux. Um, I mean, again, and the, I mean, I've learned a great deal about this from uh, taking photographs. We tend to think, for example, that when we go to work in the morning and we see the same things every day, we see the same buildings on the side of the road, we see the same traffic lights, we see the same highway, we see the same office, and it's just kind of boring and bland and uninteresting. But if you were to take every day at the same time a photograph of a very familiar landmark on your way to work, you would find when you develop, let's say, 24 images representing the last 24 days that every one would be different. The, 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 the way in which the light plays on the image, the quality of the light, the shadow, all of it would have shifted and changed. And yet we assume that it's exactly the same as the day before. 
So even at a visual level, everything is shifting and changing. And meditation is a way of alerting us and making us more attuned to this fact. But impermanence is one mark of existence, as the Buddha called it. Another one that he wanted us to notice was how everything is unreliable. We can't depend on any of these fluctuating conditions for um, a real, lasting well-being or happiness. Nothing is stable enough to generate that kind of lasting well-being. We certainly try very hard to do this. We accumulate things, we um, purchase things, we own things, we uh, adopt belief systems, all as a means whereby to acquire what we consider to be the conditions that will make us happy. And yet we probably have, have reached a point by now where we know that no matter what we get and what we have, that's not in the long term capable of providing us with a constant lasting ease and well-being. This is the famous dukkha, uh, translated as suffering, when we think of it as a subjective condition, but I feel that when we consider it as a term describing a feature of reality itself, it's pointing to a kind of undependability or unreliability of things. And the third characteristic is that of selflessness, that nothing within ourselves, as I've already mentioned, can be reduced to that permanent sense we have of being me. The more we look into our experience in meditation, the more it breaks down into a flux of interconnected, causally related events, ideas, that come and go, and none of them exist in and of themselves. And likewise, emptying, emptiness, letting go, doesn't exist in and of itself. It is an emergent property of a particular set of behaviours. So, what we are doing in Vipassana meditation is that we're stilling the mind and then systematically paying attention to impermanence, unreliability, selflessness in a contemplative, intuitive fashion until we reach a point where that sense of the world touches us in such a way that um, we begin and perhaps even suddenly begin to feel and respond to the world in another way. We break out of that more normative perception of being a fixed thing amongst other fixed things. By training ourselves to see and confirm the impermanence, the unreliability, the impersonality of our lives, that perception, that understanding, is what is the cause for a letting go. In other words, letting go or emptying is a consequence of a radical transformation in our perception of who we are and what the world is. Again, to give an example, in the classical Indian texts, not only Buddhist but Hindu as well, 
you often come across this example of the rope snake. A person goes into a darkened room and sees in the corner of the room a snake coiled up and recoils in horror and fear, rushes out of the room. But on closer observation recognises that that object is not actually a snake at all. It's a coil of rope. And as soon as you know that it's a coil of rope, all of that fear, uh, that terror, evaporates with a sense of relief and, you know, oh gosh, how silly of me. In other words, the point of that analogy is that the way we instinctively feel about something, the way that we emotionally constrict around certain things, is highly contingent or dependent on the way we perceive them, on the way we see things. If we see snakes everywhere, we're going to live in a fairly paranoid kind of state. It's going to affect us emotionally and physically. But if we discover that in fact there weren't really any snakes, then that will radically alter our relationship to the world. Maybe an example from a more contemporary source. Imagine that you have to go and have some business dealings with a person in an office somewhere. And the person is distracted, um, is unable to concentrate on the task, uh, doesn't seem to be able to help you at all, um, seems to be ignoring you, um, seems to be inefficient, and the time is going by, and you've got another appointment, and you start getting angry, and you start getting irritated. And then the person's boss comes into the room and, 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 and pulls you aside and said, look, I'm terribly sorry about Mr. Jones, but his wife and his two children were killed in a car crash yesterday. I suspect that at that point, all the irritation and the frustration and the questions, you know, why do they employ this man, will, that will evaporate immediately and you will almost certainly be replaced with a great sense of sympathy, of compassion, of kindness. And all this has come about simply by receiving a bit of information. In other words, we now don't perceive the person as an abstraparous, inefficient employee of a company that's supposed to provide me a service, but we see this person as a suffering human being who's just had an enormous crisis in their lives that, understandably, will make that person less able to concentrate on a task and we don't feel any of that bitterness or irritation anymore. And I think these examples are useful in that they point to the very crucial relationship between perception, the way we see things, the way we organise our experience in a meaningful way and how we subjectively uh, feel and um, uh, experience experience the nature of the world um, internally. So this emptying, this letting go, um, is a sense or a feeling of liberation, a feeling of release that is the result or a consequence of learning to reconfigure, reperceive the world in another way. So when Bodhidharma talks of, of not knowing, of emptiness, of not being able to find the mind. All of these are challenges 
to our habitual perceptions. And through meditation, through practice, we can learn to, um, uh, to re-perceive things in a way that begins to erode the attachments and the clingings and so forth that likewise arise out of a misperception, out of a distorted perception that might enable us to function as social creatures and as biological survivors, but does not, in fact, goes against, uh, inhibits that capacity we have for liberation, for insight, for freedom and peace. Thank you. Um, and it's at 10.45. We conclude here, I believe. Um, but I will be here after this talk for a bit and also, as was said, uh, at 12.30 we'll have a, um, a sort of workshop with talks and meditation and discussion running through to four. Thank, thank you very much.